Hello and welcome to the People Powered Green Left Podcast, where we give a voice to the 99% and not the big corporations. If you think this project is important, please consider becoming a supporter today. Now, on to our latest episode. Hello everyone, you're listening to Green Left, and today um, we're very happy to have um, Alison Pennington with us today. Alison is a senior economist with the Centre for Future Work, um, which from my understanding, is an initiative of the Australian Institute, which is a progressive Australian think tank that conducts public policy um, research on a broad range of economic, social and environmental issues, with the Centre of for Future Work focusing on the issues of work, employment and labour markets. And Alison has done quite a lot of work um, in that kind of area. So I guess the first kind of question to sort of start off a bit of the discussion is the federal government has sort of hinted at a sort of kind of in in the midst, I guess, of this pandemic, has kind of hinted at a sort of post-COVID-19 recovery plan for the economy, which has been, you know, the trend has been streamlining of industrial relations, uh, even going as far as saying that they're going to be taking inspiration for from the likes of Thatcher. In fact, one sort of strange example of kind of streamlining is they're trying to decrease the time uh, that it takes for enterprise bargaining agreements to sort of um, be um, ratified. So I guess, yeah, I, I want to kind of ask, start off a bit of discussion, what is sort of your perspective on the federal government's own sort of post-COVID-19 recovery plan? Well, I think that if we take our minds back to where we all started as the shutdowns were introduced, uh, it was quite a remarkable time because we had a um, austerity-prone federal government uh, being forced into a position where it had to take up the mantle of active public investment and active spending in order to stop a, a worse um, recession or a worse decline. So, uh, like, the first couple of their packages that came through um, of multi-billions of dollars was mostly um, geared towards business, so um, trying to keep the flows of credit going, supporting, you know, giving them nice loans, and a very small amount went to households and to workers. Um, the second package they brought in was the Job Seeker doubling, the coronavirus supplement, um, which was a interesting development. Uh, I think it's because they had planned the, the stocks of the unemployed to expand massively, and I think they wanted to hold off on providing a, a wage subsidy, which is what they did later on. They had to bring in um, the JobKeeper wage subsidy through um, pressure from various areas, including unions. And what we've seen since that initial uh, big spending program is like a real obvious uh, pivot and um, desire of the federal government to reinstate the status quo settings, if not push those settings further with regards to employer power in, in the labour market and in workplaces. Um, and overall maintaining this idea that we have to stop the Australian people from having expectations that government will spend money. Um, and that's why we're seeing all the austerity rhetoric and the, you know, the cutting of JobKeeper to some pivotal um, important workforces like the childcare workforce. Um, and so part of that whole political pivot is where we're seeing this um, really remarkable development where Frydenberg is, is claiming that uh, Thatcher um, and Reagan are his biggest uh, influences and inspirations, uh, contrary to the fact that it, it would be impossible to actually mount anything like an agenda that those those um, cretins introduced 
uh, in the neoliberal period because we are actually suffering on the tail end of those of those policies of you know tax cuts um and outs and smashing workers wages uh we're at a point now where this this project can't really go any further and I guess going on from that, um, I guess the federal government has announced that from September 27th, uh, they're going to be slashing the rate of both JobKeeper and JobSeeker. I guess what do you think are going to be the economic implications of these changes in terms of how they will disproportionately impact on the poorest and most marginalised? Well, I think you could start by looking at how much money government is cutting. So at a time when the private sector is completely collapsed, all business investment, businesses are shedding millions, you know, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Uh, when government spending is basically holding the whole thing together, if you cut government spending, it's going to increase unemployment, which is the the uh, the lie, I guess, that that the government doesn't want to say when they're saying we're being responsible and we're tapering the the programs. What they're doing is actually not only inflicting pain on those people who receive JobKeeper and JobSeeker, but they're actually ripping out. $10 billion every month than they would have previously spent, which keeps people um, in jobs. So it's going to increase unemployment. In fact, they plan to take off 2 million people off the JobKeeper subsidy, um, and a large portion of those people will then go on to the unemployment benefit. They uh, they tapered the JobKeeper, or they, they changed it, the JobKeeper payment into two streams. So if you worked less than 20 hours pre-crisis, you go you got payment gets cut from the flat rate of fifteen hundred fortnight back to seven hundred and fifty, uh, and then if you worked full time hours, you go back you go down to eleven hundred. This is going to impact. There are a lot of workers who worked less hours pre crisis, and then employers jacked up their hours because they got favourable changes to the Fair Work Act, which allowed them to increase the hours of workers to match the subsidy and basically push all of the costs of work of the workforce onto the public. Um, so those workers are going to have their pay cut and hours cut. Um, and then on the job seeker front, uh, which is the, the unemployment payment, the government cut that by $300 a fortnight. Um, and they substituted that with the ability of that, those people now to look for and earn income up to $300. But of course, we're in a, a depression era crisis. There are no, there are no jobs to be sought. Um, and this, uh, we're seeing like an escalation of this, uh, unworthy poor, um, politics of damning and, um, smashing the poor basically and, and smashing the victims of a health order and economic crisis. Um, and what we found at the Australian Institute was actually the, the impact of that decision to cut the payment by 300 fortnight was going to directly plunge 370,000 Australians into poverty, including 80,000 kids. And that's just with that $300 cut and they are threatening to cut it further. So it's a, it's, it's creating a real, um, you know, it's a, it's a direct creation of a millions of people of high levels of insecurity and, um, and, uh, an inability to actually access some of their most basic um, needs like foods and medicines. Um, and it's obviously about maintaining a precarious workforce so that when those people are pushed into jobs, they're more likely to take shitty low paid jobs and uh, they're going to have a, a far weaker bargaining position when it comes to that moment. Um, yeah, so yeah, coming out of that, I guess there's sort of a, a lot of sort of different issues that sort of come out, I guess, focusing on kind of one of them. 
one of the things about this pandemic that I've sort of observed has been really, it can be argued very strongly that women in particular have disproportionately felt the most economic impact, even going as far like, for example, even within the white collar industry, like, for example, while there's a lot of white collar uh, jobs that people can work from home to their, to their credit. But of course, for a lot of women workers who are in that position, they're probably expected uh, to take the, the brunt of the child rearing as well. And from taking in some of those kind of points, what, um, what can you, I guess, tell us about the sort of impacts on women uh, in terms of this um, crisis? I have grave concerns that what we are actually experiencing now is the erosion of decades of gains that women have made in accessing paid work. Uh, there, what we see in the, the labour market impacts of the crisis is that because women are more likely to work piecemeal, insecure work and work part-time hours, they were the first to be sacked. Uh, they were the first to lose hours and drop their hours back or cut their hours uh, including the employer cutting their hours, and they were more likely to leave the labour market altogether. And, you know, Jacob, you're bang on, like the, the key reason that it influences this isn't just because they are working with insecure jobs, but it's also because women shoulder um, the, the vast proportion of the caring burden in all of society. It's direct child-rearing, it's caring for the elderly, um, caring in community. And what we saw with the the pandemic was, an explosion in that caring burden as families had to immediately pull together to get through the lockdowns, to care for each other. Uh, and, you know, women resumed that role. and it, it resulted in a doubling down of that role. So when the government introduced free childcare, that was one of the easiest and most straightforward ways that a government could have supported and offset that massive macro social impact of a massive explosion in caring work. But of course, what they did um, a few months into the policy is they completely cut it. And that had a, an even already women were, you know, on their asses with with respect to access to jobs and incomes. But now they were it would be impossible for them to actually hold on to their jobs if they were holding on to them with their you know fingertips. But they wouldn't be able to look for work because they would have to stay home and care for kids. And so it's really been a perfect storm for for women's access to paid work. But it's not just what's happening in the labour market because employers are going to do what suits them. So they're going to they're going to lay off the cheapest workers. Are always women. Um, but actually, the government has been making this much much worse. Um, not only did they cut the childcare subsidy, uh, they have been cutting public sector pay. They've whatever stimulus they've created, very small amounts, pittance really, um, into construction. There's a very bloke heavy industries which employ mostly men. Uh, so they are exacerbating the crisis for women. And yes, there was what also happened. The pandemic was this, uh, this, we had this stratification in workers between those who had the ability to work from home and those who couldn't. We estimated about 30% of the workforce could work from home based on um, the kinds of tasks that they undertook, in particular, working from a computer, having more independence over there and agency over the hours. Um, but that also meant 70% of the workforce didn't have that ability and that, um, that ability to earn an income while working from home. So I think what we would see in this time is because those who can't work from home are more likely to be those essential insecure workers, um, those people who could work from home who actually were more likely to be women, we're going to see those women now cut back their hours increasingly as the shutdowns and the health orders and the economic recession unfurls um, because uh, they are what we know, um, statistically speaking, women are going to be the ones who take on the caring burden. So 
that we, what we'll see is even women who who manage to secure their incomes are still going to be the ones um, who who decline. So it's going to be uh, uh, the gender impacts are going to be bad across the board. Yes, another another key issue um, has that you sort of also raised has been unemployment. Yet, whenever the government kind of reports uh, about unemployment, they're generally working on the ABS sort of statistics. And in fact, I'm not sure what time this was taken, but quite recently, the most recent statistic I read was that the unemployment rate within this kind of pandemic is only 7.4%. And of course, previously, I've seen you publicly kind of um, state on Twitter that you believe that the real unemployment rate to be 19%. And I guess in line with everything we've sort of discussed, I wanted to hear a bit of a sort of elaboration on that. Yeah, well, this, this is the hard thing because our unemployment statistics, they operate in a time of you know, relative normality. And in a crisis where you've got people being laid off, you've got government support programs that are, you know, like a subsidy that's holding people into jobs. It's difficult to know what the real impacts of crisis are at any point. But what we do know for certain is that the formal unemployment rate now and before, for a long time, it hasn't been an indication of the, the level of underutilisation, which is in, we use this term in economics to talk about the relative capacity of people to work that isn't being realised. So that's not just unemployed people, that's people who are underemployed um, and that's people who are completely outside of the labour market statistics book altogether. And before the crisis, there were over a million of those people. That's huge. And that they were most um, most of those people were, were young people and there was some really worrying trends that young people were being disconnected from work and education. But um, in this crisis, what we see, like the most recent statistics for June, so this is before the Victorian shutdown. So this is going to be a better picture than actually where we're at. Those statistics show um, about 992,000 people are unemployed. So that's near a million or 7.4% of the workforce. Uh, then you, if you add in, though, those workers who didn't work, who were formally classified as employed but didn't work a single hour, uh, and those who had their hours um, reduced by a great number, that's, that adds another 1.15 million people. And we include those people because in a recession, if an employer is back cut your hours back to near nothing, there's a good chance that either you're on the JobKeeper subsidy um, and or or and or that the, the employer isn't going to make it on the other side. So if you add those two together and then you add the 400,000 people who have left the labour market, who have given up on looking for non-existent jobs uh, since the since the March lockdowns, um, that, that equates to 2.4 million people, which that's where that's how I reached my 19% um, adjusted total labour force figure. Hmm. Yeah, and I guess you brought this up before. I guess youth unemployment and insecure work were key issues, I guess, even prior to the pandemic. And I guess want to hear comments on how the pandemic has exacerbated those issues because just recently, I mean, I was talking to Zane and Chloe about this, but um, I, I've been searching for a housemate and I noticed that one of the flatmate sort of dot com dot au profiles um one of the women on her profile basically it said that um she used to have work in the hospitality industry but that now she has to work in as an uber driver and i kind of wonder if there is a trend um of many young people in that situation who you who have lost work in insecure industries such as hospitality but have then sought employment in a even more insecure industry such as the gig economy 
Oh, absolutely. I think this is what's so like usually in downturns and big recessions, uh, like it, it hits in production eventually or it starts there or it gets there. And that means that workers who are in generally secure jobs feel the pinch. But what's so um, unique and like brutal about this about this big recession is that it immediately hit the most insecure people in society. And so those people in those customer facing sectors like hospitality, uh, retail, the arts, they were already the most precarious workers. And they were then um, because it's, you know, seen as like the entry level work into the workforce. They were more likely to be young people and women and migrant workers as well. So like these are the three most vulnerable groups in the workforce. Uh, and, you know, like any big economic event and big recession, uh, we have an explosion in security and survivalist employment. And that's what gig work is all about. Like contrary to this narrative that has been pushed as it's like a form of entrepreneurialism, it is always taken up by the most insecure and most beaten down workers. And so it's, you know, gig work was super important because migrants, you know, over a million of them were completely shut out of any government support when this crisis hit. Um, and that's always what government, you know, like a conservative government's going to do that because it's the easiest, you know, the easiest people to beat, right? Because you can trump up this idea that they're undeserving because they're not, they're not Australians. And uh, what we're going to find now is, you know, more people just like the one that you're, you're, person you're talking about, Jacob, where young people um, would increasingly pull for survivalist employment. And that's what gig work is. It's outside of labour protections. Employers can freely exploit uh, workers, force them to pay for their own capital costs. Um, it's, it's very unsafe. And there is some, you know, brilliant work that unions are doing, you know, desperate work to try and in, install some kind of work health safety um, measures in this gig work, like the TWU do a lot of work there. Um, and yeah, I think, you know, it starts there. It's going to be all forms of self-employment. Gig work is just like a particularly exploitative um, form of it because these big platform companies are actually exploiting um, all of this unutilization. But we're going to see all sorts of, you know, cash jobs and young people just scrambling whatever they can to, to pull together um you know, the incomes they need. And this, this is why it's for me, it's like, un, it's not totally not feasible how this, this set of circumstances can continue. Like young people are the most educated generation in Australian history. And, you know, our, our you know, world history shows that if, if smart young people get shafted and go back, backwards compared to their parents' generation, they eventually organize and um, they do something about those, those conditions. So I, it's, I think it's going to be, painful for young people for some time but I do have a lot of hope um that that those that young people you know combined with their the climate change realities that they, they're going to have to pull together and, and do something oh yeah just on what you were you were just saying that we have to to do something else and um you know up to 3.5 million people are now on job keeper uh, some of those people you know might might not get their jobs back um they're having their income now slashed, uh, like you said, to a maximum of $1,000 per fortnight. Uh, a lot of casuals um, are losing their jobs. And despite this, the, the sale of luxury cars has skyrocketed. The, the stock market seems to be doing quite well, still making a profit. Um, you know, I know there's no easy solution, but well, how do you think we're going to get out of this mess, um, you know, this recession before it all gets worse? The, you know, we have a PM that's saying things like 
we need a business-led recovery. The treasurer is becoming publicly nostalgic about, you know, Margaret Thatcher. Um, what what do you think? Um, you know, you said there's hope for the future. What what do you think we can do about it? Yeah, I mean, economically speaking, uh, you know, Australia's economy is dominated by mining and resources, and they, it's been this way since you know this bastard colony really began. And it's mining resources still controls the outcomes of what's happening in this crisis. That's why they constituted the the COVID Commission, the National COVID Commission, and Parliament was suspended. Um, and we, it's possible, I think, to maintain this a set of conditions where mining controls industrial relations and you know the overall tax environment, and then they and then government provides income supports and you know piecemeal. Um, creates an environment for insecure low-wage jobs. Like that's that was our pre-crisis situation, and that's exactly the program of, of the coalition now. Um, you know, and there but there are some pretty, you know, when I say I have hope that this it it can't be maintained. Um, you know, there are some pretty significant barriers to to continuing these conditions, um, and it's like for for starters the scale of unemployment. It's just it's too high. Uh, for government to keep peddling this this myth of a business-led recovery, we have to be absolutely clear, um, and progressives have to get get their heads around this and be willing to prosecute these arguments very confidently. There is not going to be a business-led recovery. Like there is no such thing as a business-led recovery in a recession the size of what you know we are undertaking right now. Um, like the, the private sector is completely battered. What's going on is that because their power is so much greater than organised everyday people. They are allowed to use the levers of government investment to their own advantage. So what's going to happen is there will be billions and billions of dollars of public money spent in this crisis. It's going to be a public-led recovery. Um, so this idea of a business-led one is is untrue. Um, but the government is going to find it very, very hard to convince the people that, that what's going on is that business is leading. And that's where I think that there's um, there's going to be opportunities opening up, not just the scale of people who have been completely dislocated in this crisis. But there's, it's difficult to point to any layer of Australian workers right now and say that they are doing better um, than others. I think that this is a totalising um, experience. And also, you know, like there's an ongoing battle about the relative, um, you know, stability and uh, the, the strategy of the public health approach that Australia has taken. I think people have actually really underestimated the the, the scale of the, the fight that's going on between the let it rip Trump-esque, you know, conservatives at the at the coalition Commonwealth level and the role that state governments are playing to, uh, you know, use government levers to, you know, literally shut down production, which is what they've done in Victoria, in order to save lives. And if we think about the overall trajectory of capitalist economies, that's a pretty that's a pretty radical and um, pretty remarkable situation whereby a government has is being forced to step in and um, halt the profit motive and halt business as usual on the on the condition on on the um, on the basis that it's in the interest of human lives. I think it's an amazing opportunity uh, that can be way better exploited um well first of all has to be recognized and i think it from there i think there's a, a huge possibility that we can build a pro public-led um you know reconstruction agenda that is democratic that uh you know builds out of the 
the support that everyday people have for our healthcare system and the the overall position that we want to save lives and make lives better after this crisis rather than go back to, to what it was before. Yeah, Ali, this ties into a article that you had published in Jacobin last year saying uh, Australian, I think the title was uh, Australian Unions, We Need a Political Vision. And it's talking about how the history of the Australian union movement, with some exceptions, is that generally its bread and butter has been fighting over a share of uh, wages post-production. And the point that you were sort of making that article, which I think is very relevant right now, is that the Australian trade union movement doesn't really have a big history of saying, here's this big public works projects that we want here's here's a way that we want to reshape Australian society to be better for the majority and we're going to fight for it um there's no shortage of stuff that needs to happen we've got a climate crisis we need to build publicly owned renewables grid upgrades uh, we need energy efficiency refits we need um high speed rail and better public transport more public housing there's all this stuff that needs to happen and can you just comment on, I guess, the Australian uh, trade union movement and the left needing to maybe come out of its comfort zone a bit or, or do something new in confronting this crisis and, and as you say, pushing for um, workers need to understand that our work, our productive activity, you said in that article, is distinct from wage labour, what we do that is economically valued by our boss. Um, I wonder if you could just comment on the, I guess, some of the implications of that article and how it relates to something like a, a Green New Deal as a as a way of getting out of this this slump that we're in. Yeah, right on, Zane. I think that uh, I mean, just to to start off with the Green New Deal, like Green New Deal is just a it's a version of this idea of a more democratic public led investment project. You know, one that empowers workers to lead a process of changing, you know, an economy in their interest and rebuilding it. And in our case, obviously, with climate change knocking on our door, it's like, you know, and Australia's actually really ill-prepared um, to, you know, to confront the impact of what climate change means on our ability to produce and live, you know, in our economy, in our society. Um, yeah, I think that the Green New Deal is a is a good framework. Um, it's, it's just like a, I guess it's a, the branding version of um, what is the, the principle yeah, of, of public-led investment that's democratic. Um, and, oh, I mean, where to start? I, I think that uh, it would be a really, really positive development if, if um, you know, left people in Australia could engage seriously with the mechanisms of building worker power. Um, you know, for many years I've... I've been working, you know, had my mind set on what's going on in the labour movement because, I, like, regardless of all the challenges and the historical precedents that we inherit, we can't deny that these are the most important institutions and the most powerful ones we have right now to go about changing the world for working people right now. So it's, and it's from that perspective, I guess, of a, you know, and I come from an independent working class perspective and I have an interest in building work, independent working class politics. Um, that, you know, it's it's not difficult to look at the history of the labour movement and identify that it's been hamstrung 
um, at critical points, really pivotal moments, and not just the accords. Like there are lots of periods where um, unions, if they had the capacity to step out and strike on their own, um, you know, literally and and in a in, in an idea sense and in a policy sense, um, you know, they they could have. It, it, we could have we could have gone down different tracks. So I, I diagnose um, a lot of the problems um, in the capacity of unions to articulate these perspectives on the basis that they've deferred to their political wing, um, and the political wing of of the union movement is seen as the ALP. But I, I don't think that that's um, a permanent situation. In fact, there's a lot of contradictions that are and bubbling um, tensions that are there. In particular, like thinking about pretty key ALP figures who have come out and said, why don't we just cut these guys loose? You know, they don't bring anything to us. Um, you know, I, I would, I had, a, I had a apart, from, apart from heaps of money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. But if they think that, that, that connections to working people don't give them anything, then like we'll see the, the further decline of um, the ALP's rel- relevance. Absolutely. Um, so on the basis that, you know, it's it's so important that unions start to articulate and develop these visions for working people. Um, I think that the the ACTU's uh, you know five point jobs plan that they've brought out is like a really really important development, important step forward, um, and you know an important response in this crisis. Um, and yeah, I I think that a combination of you know I think they are advocating for free child education. Uh, They've got a, a rediscover Australia policy idea, which is basically forcing the Commonwealth to pay the wages of major tourism and arts sectors so that we can rebuild those sectors that have been most attacked in this or most battered in this crisis. Um, recentering TAFE and free, you know, free education in, into uh, the reconstruction of a, an awesome skill system that actually gives people, you know, meaningful, tangible skills, stuff that we need to do things like you know, upgrade our our grids, um, you know, develop a renewable infrastructure, um, you know, spread that across all of the economy. Like there are so many technical and theoretical jobs that need to be done and we need to have workers with the skills to do it and we need unions to be leading a process that says we're going to be in control of that. Um, and we need serious stable in, um, in infrastructure investment and we desperately need to rebuild our manufacturing capacity because we've, it's been completely decimated. So, all those, all those important jobs that need to be done, Zane, that you outlined, it's going to be very hard for Australian workers to do this without any manufacturing capacity. Um, I just wanted to finish, like, on a point you said about, uh, you know, you alluded to um, a quote in my Jacobin article about making a distinction between work and wage labour, and I think, like, this is just so critical for us to be able to, to start to uh, embrace worker-led um, economic strategies like for a lot of time people have just assumed anytime you talk about economics or an economy it's it's the same thing as private-led investment or private-led activity actually working people every day if we remove the wage relation everyday working people are working all the time um, sometimes they sell their labor for a boss a lot of the time they're just working in the home and reproducing human life and our communities and the, the, the kinds of work that gets done, like, like that human effort is different to human effort captured by a small number of private interests who exploit that, pay us less and create a, you know, a market system whereby we're paid less for our efforts. So it, I think we absolutely have to start 
embracing a more, you know, totalizing pro worker concept of work that says work on our terms is, you know, is the ideal. Because if we want to build the kind of sustainable, inclusive, equal world we want, uh, you know, on the other side of this pandemic, workers need to be empowered to, to be connected to their to their work as something that is theirs and they own for themselves and for their, you know, for their union comrades and for their families and communities. Um, and that's a lot of the work that we do at the Centre for Future Work is we're trying to impart that kind of knowledge and that kind of distinction so that we don't kind of just throw the baby out with the bathwater, right? We can't just, you know, there's no such thing as a post-work world. This doesn't exist. If we want to consume goods and services and we want to have, you know, something like the living standards that we have fought for, you know, for, for decades under this system, like we need to come up with ways of doing that. Um, continuing to produce, but in ways that are more, you know, better for, for humans and not in the way that we do it at the moment. I hope you got a lot out of this episode. To continue producing shows like this, we need your support. Consider becoming a supporter for $5 a month, sharing this show on social media, and submitting your own stories. You can do all this at our website, greenleft.org.au.